The beauty of the all-volunteer force continues, and there are people across the cascade of nurses and doctors and techs and everything it takes to take care of your family members, your husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. There is nothing we take more seriously than our ability to take care of them, not only when they go into harm's way, but every day here in Garrison. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Rear Admiral Pamela C. Miller is a board-certified emergency medicine physician and currently serves as the medical officer of the United States Marine Corps. In this episode, Dr. Miller describes her pathway into military medicine and many clinical and leadership lessons she has learned throughout her distinguished career. She talks about her experiences providing medical support for Marine Corps units and how the Marines are supported by Navy medicine at the tip of the spear around the world. Dr. Miller describes her time deployed and her experience as the command surgeon for the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. She provides insights into how Navy and Marine medicine is preparing for the next conflict, which will likely be very different from recent counterinsurgency operations and be fought in multiple domains with a near-peer adversary. You can find out more about Dr. Miller and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Kevin Neary, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome the Medical Officer of the United States Marine Corps, Rear Admiral Dr. Pamela C. Miller to Wardocs. Man, thanks for joining us today. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So you began your career as a nurse in the Navy Reserve Nurse Corps. What led you to pursue military medicine career? Well, interestingly, my decision to join military medicine was largely influenced by my two older brothers who were both United States Marines. So when I was 12, I already knew I was going to be a nurse, and I announced to my brothers that I was going to be a Marine, and they said, well, I got news for you. If you want to be in military medicine, you're going to be in the Navy if you want to take care of Marines. So my, my decision to enter a military pathway was largely influenced by two older brothers who I really admired and was inspired by their military service. So you subsequently decided to apply for and were you were granted an HBSB scholarship to go to medical school. What brought about that decision? Well, I had already been in the Navy probably about five years when my commanding officer at the time actually started having a conversation with me suggesting, hey, you should really consider medical school. And I had just honestly never considered it. I was an advanced practice nurse in the inpatient setting, ER and ICU, and never had really crossed my mind. And the more he talked to me, the more I really got interested in that. And about that same time, I started to become very frustrated in the healthcare sector about what I felt as limitations placed on me on what I could actually accomplish for my patients independently. And therefore, the two of those things sort of collided. And I was becoming frustrated at not being able to accomplish what I wanted to for the patients and felt a glass ceiling over my head and had my commanding officer also inspiring me to consider a career as a physician in the Navy. And that's what led me down the path of applying for a scholarship to see if I could get in the door and make a career as a physician in the Navy. Did you ever think about the Uniformed Services University or did you even know about it at that time? I'll be very honest with you. I did not know about it at the time. 
And looking back, I would have totally considered approaching USIS to see if I could get into the Uniformed Services University. But you know how they say things tend to work out. And there were a lot of things I did during my time in my civilian medical school at Des Moines University. I was the president of AMOPS and was able to really work because I was experienced in the military a little bit, was really able to help my fellow classmates who were on HPSP scholarships from across all the services and was able to really be a factor in helping them launch their careers and was afforded an opportunity of a dual degree program. So I was afforded the opportunity of a dual degree program. So I was able to get both my medical degree and a master's in healthcare administration might not have happened otherwise. So as they say, no, I didn't know about USIS at the time. I always speak to that now when I'm speaking of potential future candidates. I, you know, discuss both options with them. But for myself, though, I didn't know that that was an option. Things worked out well for me. Yeah. The reason I asked is when we interview a lot of people kind of from our generation, that's a very common answer that they'd never heard of USUS. I, I had never heard of it when I applied to medical school either. How did you decide on emergency medicine and how did your prior experience in the military and in healthcare help you during your residency? Well, fortuitously, I had already had an opportunity to practice in the ER as a nurse and as an advanced practice nurse, most of my time was spent between the intensive care unit and the emergency department, I had already developed a real love for emergency medicine environment. That was just something that I was really drawn to. And you know what they say about the emergency room in terms of nurses and doctors, you either love it or you hate it. There's really no in between. And I really love the ER. And that absolutely influenced my decision of when I was starting to make decisions in my military medicine career. I went through my rotations with the idea that unless something really comes out of the blue and strikes me that I wasn't expecting, emergency medicine was the bar that I was holding every other option against. And I will tell you that my prior military experience really, really served me well, both in med school and residency. I had already developed a lot of skills and had already even held some very junior leadership positions by the time I was in med school and residency. So you're really starting at a different place in kind of your professional maturation process. And I was very comfortable in environment where students and interns and residents typically have to develop and get their wheels under them. I kind of started at a different place. I was very comfortable taking care of sick patients and managing large teams, working collaboratively across all the disciplines, working with families and having difficult conversations leading a team out even in the field environment with my unit that I drilled with at the time. Really, you just put you in an entirely different place in the lineup in terms of your comfort level with what you're asked to do and what you need to learn in med school and residency. So it's interesting going back to when you were talking about your brothers, when you said, hey, I want to join the Marines and I want to do healthcare. And they said, oh, no, you got to join the Navy. Well, now you're the medical officer of the United States Marine Corps. So how does that work? How does the Navy and Marine Corps collaborate to provide healthcare support for both of those services? Well, interesting as Navy Marine Corps are basically under both under the Department of the Navy and they are tied at so many levels, the entire naval integration and the amphibious force and readiness 
and we're in lockstep in so many ways already with Navy medicine providing all of the medical support to the Navy and the Marine Corps. They're basically seen as you put Navy requirements on the table and we have Marine Corps requirements on the table and positions we need to fill. And our specialty leaders and detailers put the right person against the right job, but they are seen equally on the table. And we just ensure that we cover down and answer the mail on all the requirements, whether they're in support of Navy or in support of the Marine Corps, because they're so tightly linked anyway. And if you do serve with the Marine Corps, if you go out on a MEW or out as part of the MAGTAF, you're working side by side uh, with your Navy counterparts at times as well. So it's a great opportunity because people can actually ebb and flow between assignments, some with they will go with the Marine Corps for a while and then pivot over and take a blue side assignment. And so the opportunities are very diverse for Navy medicine, more so than any of the other services because of the Navy Marine Corps team. So just out of curiosity, if you're supporting the Marines as a Navy medical officer, do you wear a Marine uniform or are you allowed to or expected to? No, those are all different levels of questions. If you deploy with them at the operational level as part of, say, 1st Medical Battalion or Division or Wing as part of an organic assignment with the Marine Corps, you wear their their MAR patch, you wear their camouflage uniform, for sure. That is your field uniform. You wear the same uniform they wear, but it has a U.S. Navy tape on it instead of U.S. Marine Corps tape on it. That's the only difference. And how you wear your collar devices is different, but it's the same uniform. Whether you choose to do what we call Marine Corps regulations, where you can wear their Alphas, their Bravos, and their Charlies, is a choice a person makes. And you have to be in standards. You have to be in Navy standards. And you sign some paperwork that says, I know that I need to remain in standards. And you can choose to wear their Alpha, Bravos, and Charlies. You cannot wear their service dress blues. It's not required for those uniforms. It is considered a privilege and an honor to wear their uniform when you're Navy personnel. And of course, in senior leadership assignments such as mine, I would absolutely choose to wear their uniform. And I'm representing the Commandant of the Marine Corps and his staff and his organization. And and of course, I wear their uniforms. And most people that are in senior leadership assignments do as well. As the senior medical officer for the 1st Medical Battalion and deputy surgeon for the 1st Marine Logistics Group, Your unit deployed the first forward resuscitative surgical systems team into combat operations. Tell us a little bit more about that mission and the experience of that team. Yeah, that was a very interesting time. I was assigned with 1st Medical Battalion when 9-11 occurred. And as it happened, we were getting ready to field test and certify the FRSS as at that time our next generation of how we were going to provide damage control surgery support in combat operations. And we had just taken it to an exercise called Bright Star in Egypt and had certified it and came back. And right after that, 9-11 kicked off. So it was just a very short interval of time. And that team was packed up and sent to Afghanistan. And so it was a very fast sequence of events that occurred, but they did a a stellar job. And we learned so much from that team that took that K-1 
capability out the door for the first time, and they came back and gave us great feedback on where there needed to be some changes, minor modifications, consider this change, consider that change, and we have been able to make iterative changes to that platform ever since. But what a critical time that was and very fortuitous that we had just field certified this capability and they almost immediately got sent out the door. It is a strange situation for you when you're at a fairly junior point in your career, when you're sending some of your best friends and colleagues out the door into combat operations under very austere and concerning circumstances. But we felt very good about what we were able to put out there on the battlefield. They did a great job and the FRSS has been in the lineup ever since. So what was the original lineup of providers and the personnel that went with the FRSS and has that changed at all to today? It has changed a little bit and there's always discussion on is it one trauma surgeon and one orthopedic surgeon that makes up this approximately eight to nine person team? Is it two trauma surgeons? What exactly makes that up? But you've got, it's an operative capability, of course. So you've got the surgeons, you have the operating room nurse, you have the enlisted support. And most commonly, the FRSS is sent out the door with the shock trauma platoon. It doesn't, those two wouldn't necessarily have to go hand in hand, but that is Definitely the most common deployment of that capability in the shock trauma platoon then has your ER physicians and nurse and corpsmen, and that is your casualty receiving and prepping area to make the patients ready to go into the operating room and then also receive the patients after they get out and stage them for patient movement at that point and um, evacuation. So they work hand in hand and those capabilities have morphed over the years They were much leaner when they first hit the battlefield, and they were used in a very mobile fashion, especially during the first part of the ground war in Iraq. And they were very mobile and moved across the battle space in very close proximity to where the Marines were taking casualties and close to where the action was. And then over time, the equipment set that has gone along with that capability kind of morphed into something a little bit bigger than what was the original doctrine. So now there's a lot of work right now, even with the Marine Corps, on what exactly does our next generation roll to light maneuver look like? And we're scaling that back down to a very agile, very small capability that you can pack and move quickly, that has a lower weight and cube with it, that has a bit smaller footprint, but that approximately eight to nine person original footprint, it hasn't changed a lot over time. So As we lean forward into Force Design 2030, part of the health services piece of that, there's a lot of innovation and experimentation going on. And basically all three of the active component MEFs and on what exactly does that next roll to light maneuver look like? So we're driving towards that solution. So you mentioned the mobile shock trauma platoon and you were the officer in charge in one of the deployments to Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit more about that unit? You described it a little bit and your experiences when you were deployed with that unit. Our shock trauma platoon had approximately 25 personnel, ER physicians or authorized substitution for a second ER physician, maybe family medicine or somebody along those lines and a cascade of nurses and, and corpsmen that support that capability. That is, a, you can think of it like the emergency room. That is your casualty receiving, 
stabilization and where a lot of the original racking and stacking of prioritization for the operating room occurs. And for those that do not need to go on to an OR, you treat them and get them ready for medevac and get them in line to be evacuated. And then you help set the prioritization along with the surgeons on who's first to go into the OR depending on what kind of a situation you're in. For instance, in the first part of the groundwork, these remained mobile. So you had an FRSS and an STP. But as the, as the ground war went on in the Middle East, what happened was they tended to start consolidating these capabilities. And I'll use the example of I went to Al-Takadam Air Base in Al-Anbar province in Iraq, and we had consolidated several of these under one roof in Al-Takadam Surgical Hospital. So the personnel there represented several FRSSs and a couple shock trauma platoon and meant to be fixed in a fixed facility. But the requirement of the commander of the line leadership was we had to maintain a mobile capability, both for a FRSS and a shock trauma platoon in the event that we needed to leave the wire and go mobile in support of some operation or situation. So we had to drill to that. We maintained the gear and we trained and we trained and we trained for personnel to rapidly move to a particular location, assemble as quick as possible what our an initial operating capacity was, what our final, op- our full operating capacity was, and then to tear down and be able to relocate again. And we drilled that until we had that on a very tight timeline and knew that we were confident that we maintained that mobile capability in case they needed to send us outside the wire. We did get staged for a possible operation one time, but we, in fact, never did have to punch outside the wire to take the mobile capability out, but we were perfectly capable to do so as called upon. Any memorable clinical cases from that deployment? Well, honestly, I have a lot of memorable clinical cases from that deployment that I can still envision them as if they were yesterday, and that was many years ago for me. But one is a particular standout because I think it's the scenario that would be hardest for any of us that are, that are clinicians, and that is when one of your own from your own unit comes in to your shock trauma bay. And until you're looking down on that patient and you see the name on their shirt, they are so badly injured that you would otherwise be unable to tell who they were, except for the fact of their name tape on their shirt and the fact that they were grabbing at my blouse and they kept grabbing at my blouse, but they were so badly injured from the nose down that really you, I, I looked in I saw their eyes and then I knew exactly who it was. And of course, I won't share that information, but it was somebody I had worked with quite extensively back in Camp Pendleton. And I think time sort of stops for that second when you realize one of your own is in front of you. And when you have to do what you can for the person and then medevac them out and on to the next level of care. And for the rest of the deployment, you're trying to figure out what exactly happened to them. You can track them through our system of tracking casualties. So you may know where they are and be able to see basically generically what's happening. But when it's one of your own, a little part of you just goes with them and your, your heart just stops for a second when you recognize that in your shock trauma platoon. So that was a particularly difficult case for me. Where are Navy emergency medicine physicians positioned in the battle space supporting Navy and Marine units? And then as far as ships go, what type of ships have emergency medicine physicians? And then at the broader scale, what role levels would you find emergency medicine doctors? 
So kind of working backwards through that, emergency medicine physicians, by the nature of the work that they do, will be found at role two and role three facilities in the battle space. I mean, you will find them in role four facilities, but now you're getting pretty far back outside the battle space. And when you speak of the battle space, I'm thinking inside the area of operations. So they could be at a brick and mortar. If you think of somewhere like Japan, where we have our hospitals and and our brick and mortar structures over there, they are going to be there. They will be with medical battalion in the shock trauma platoons. So they'll be working in the MTFs, in the shock trauma platoons as, as part of that role to capability. And really the only ships that ER doctors would be billeted on, like there would actually be a hard billet for an ER doctor. They could be on an LHA or an LPD, but really only if they're embarked as part of a fleet surgical team. There really are no hard billets for ER doctors, not even on our hospital ships, because I believe probably presumably Patients are going to sort of be past that phase by the time they get to the hospital ships. But with that said, we can task organize any, any way we need to. And if there is a particular requirement that is known, they can diverge off of a standard manning document and ask for augmentation. And then we could always put an ER doctor if we needed to. They will be on if they happen to be part of the fleet surgical team would be the one situation unless the ER physician happens to be holding one of the leadership billets, uh, like a a SMO or a CATF surgeon or one of the leadership jobs, that that would just be happen chance that they would be there at that time. One of your roles was reserve component operational medicine specialty leader. What are the priorities and challenges in operational medicine for the Navy and Marines? Well, I would say the priorities and the challenges kind of revolve around a couple things. First of all, our first priority is to ensure we have a ready medical force. And what I mean by that is to ensure that across all of our requirements that our providers are getting the reps and sets they need to maintain their proficiency at what they're going to be asked to do once in a deployed environment. And sometimes that means for us, because thankfully, We have a primarily healthier force, and in our own medical treatment facilities, we may not have the trauma cases and things that we need. So we develop military-civilian partnerships where we can place our providers out in other settings to get those reps and sets that they need. So I would say our, our first priority is to ensure a ready medical force. And of course, the reason for that is because we have to be able to respond to contingency and crisis situations especially in support of distributed maritime operations or the expeditionary advance-based operations of the Marine Corps. We have to be prepared for a fight tonight scenario. So we are very focused on the readiness of our force and we engage in very innovative ways to ensure whether that's simulation training, whether that's training as part of the joint force, MILSIV partnerships, and of course, inside of our own MTFs and in our own operational environment on our own equipment through exercises that we participate in, not just with the Navy and Marine Corps, but across the joint force with many of the combatant commands. So that is how we ensure our readiness. And part of our concerns, of course, are being able to train for a much different expectation than the two-decade ground war that we came out of. Our expectations in a future fight are very, very different. And so we look for opportunities to get after those training requirements. We are anticipating a contested airspace, a contested maritime space, 
And this is not going to allow us to execute our usual Kazavac and Medivac options that we so dearly <laughs> know and love and have done forever. We have to have a very different plan. So patient movement and the presence of a contested airspace and contested maritime space is very high on our list of concerns in the operational medicine environment. And in that same vein, no pun intended, we are con concerned about contested logistics and contested medical logistics. And how do we get after that in such a spans of water with the time and distance gap that we face from where a lot of our primary supply comes from back here in CONUS? And also sort of a new thing that is of a newer emphasis is all domain patient movement. We can't just plan on helicopters and the usual sequence of events. It was very linear, very well known. Everybody writes their CASAVAC plan and it usually involves somebody flying and taking your patient somewhere else fairly readily after they're stabilized and ready to go. And that is just not at all what the next fight looks like. So that has been what is on the forefront of our mind from an operational medicine planning standpoint. You mentioned how you make sure that the, the folks are getting the sets and reps that they need. And that's easier to do in Compo 1 active duty where you control those personnel. How do you make sure that the Compo 3, the reservists or Compo 2, they're ready to do what they need to do when they're called on to do it? Well, so the interesting thing about that is, is that, and this is a generalization because there are some exceptions but definitely when you're talking about our critical wartime specialist and the officer ranks, the reservists are not who have the readiness problem from a KSA standpoint because they're out practicing their trade, usually in very high-end environments every day. They work in those facilities where we're trying to establish those MILSIV partnerships to enhance the uh, readiness for the active component. So when you actually look at it, our and the other hat that I wear is I have all of Navy Reserve Medicine kind of under my, my wing from that standpoint. And we don't have near the readiness problem. Now, our enlisted force are a little bit more challenging because more often than in the officer component, the enlisted may not practice their trade in the civilian sector. They may run a computer business. They may do something that's completely unrelated. They may work for Amazon. So we have to focus on them and make sure they get their reps and sets more so than our critical wartime specialist and the officer. The real challenge for us that we're all working on right now is capturing that experience and being able to translate that into our system so that we can capture and take credit for all of that great experience that we have in the reserve component and that is actually reflected in our readiness data. Can you tell us about your experience as the command surgeon for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command? And what are the MILMED priorities supporting the combatant command? Well, that was a fantastic experience. Let me tell you, that was probably one of my most professionally challenging and periods of growth for me professionally. And I loved that job because it afforded so many opportunities to expand my skills in so many ways. For example, the opportunity to work with allies and partners across the region was phenomenal. And so you really get a much better understanding of how other countries, big and small, prepare their force and what their capabilities are and what would that look like for us in an environment where we are going to be working in tandem with our allies and partners in a challenging theater. So from that standpoint, that was an amazing opportunity. And the priorities 
are not a lot different than what are at the service level, only it's a compilation of priorities at the combatant command level. And our priorities for military medicine were to capitalize on the strength of the joint force. Each of the services bring unique capabilities and something special to the table. So the ability to integrate seamlessly those strengths across the joint health service support construct was really our main focus. And we kept coming around the planning table. We would war game and we would exercise it so that we could really advance our planning and our support construct to the combatant commander to a much higher level. And really out there, it is more important than anywhere else to see all things through a purple lens because it will take everybody and everything to be successful. So you start getting really creative and you start talking about things that once upon a time would have kind of been blasphemy. Like we take soldiers and show them what it's like to go on board a ship. What would it be like to exercise your role to capability? Can we bring soldiers onto a shipboard platform if we needed augmentation or we needed to be able to distribute across the AOR beyond what the breadth and scope of our own service capabilities were? Can we fall in on equipment for the Army or the Air Force if we need to marry up capability with other people's equipment? Can we do that? And then at the next level, can we make hybrid teams? Can we make hybrid teams? And in an environment where we have to talk about things we haven't talked a lot about historically for many, many decades, such as replacement forces, if we were to get into a contingency, and then we need to know before the time of need, not at the moment of need, how we come together and work as one joint health service support force. And so the priorities out there are familiar to people who have done this type of planning. The contested environment for all the reasons that we talked about, how do we move patients? How do we move logistics? How do we move blood? And how do we get after all of those requirements in the vast space of an AOR? And how do we do joint medical logistics? And to what degree do our things plug and play between the services? We've been really focused on that lately. And I think one of our hot topics across all of the services in military medicine is prolonged field care forward. What is it going to be like to kind of have to squat and hold on patients for periods of time that we are unaccustomed to? It may be days, it may be longer than days. And what does that skill set look like? Because that is not a damage control surgery capability that you need when you're going to have to sit and, and park on patients until such time as it's safe to move them. Now you're talking about people with different skill sets. How do you prevent how, how do you improve their physiology, prevent infections, treat burns over a long period of time? You're talking about a, a lot of nursing and supporting cast that are not necessarily part of our, you know, damage control capability sets, et cetera. So all the services together, I mean, we're all focused on what does prolonged field care look like and what does it mean when we cannot use our usual nice little linear roll one, roll two, roll three out of theater type of CASAVAC and MEDEVAC plan, and we have to um, do something that's not quite that straightforward. And may we may need to make call audibles and kind of take advantage of wherever we can go at that moment. And what does it look like to receive patients that have not been worked up? That when we, one thing that we worry about and we talk about is mass movement of patients, like moving large numbers of uncontrolled patient movement to that next point of care. And instead of getting all these nicely worked up patients with notes and here's what's happened, you are actually getting a mass casualty at that next level when normally you would have been getting patients who've been worked up under in that medevac pipeline. So mass 
mass casualties, movement of mass pet casualties, and how do we teach and train people to those environments that we really have not had to face probably since World War II? So this is the focus of our current training. So I'll give you a real-world scenario. Uh, you're in the office of the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and he asks you, says, hey, Pam, are we ready for large-scale combat operations and multi-domain operations from a medical standpoint? How would you answer that question? And the second question would be, how do we know? So those are great questions. And actually, we have those conversations. And I get those questions from the Commandant and from the Assistant Commandant and from our senior leaders across the Marine Corps. And so here's the good news story is that we sit at the planning table with the Marine Corps. It is an integrated team. So our health service personnel are right there at the planning table. So we are well aware of what's going to be asked of us in in the future fight. And we're well aware of what's going to be asked of us in Force Design 2030. And so then we have to do an about face and kind of evaluate, kind of look in the mirror and say, how are we postured for a fight tonight construct? How are we postured? And what I would say to that is that we have been using multiple different lines of effort to stay after our getting our reps and sets for the training that we need to face a fight tonight construct in in the next conflict. And I am I I would say to the commandant, I'm very I'm very confident that we will bring you a highly qualified, ready medical force to answer the mail. Those environments, under the best of circumstances, with the best of training, will be very challenging, and the commandant understands that. The Marine Corps of all services understands that. They reside at the pointy end of the spear. And so they get that. So he is very pleased that we are getting out of the box thinking. We are exercising innovation and we are taking every opportunity of exercises and field training to evaluate newer, better ways of doing things and constantly iterating our plans for how we do business. But if we had to go to fight tonight, we are, we are ready to do so. With all of the challenges that we already discussed in that operating environment, but right there with everybody else, we'll be facing those same challenges. Do we have some areas that we need to shore up? And even I would have offered to you, not just as a Marine Corps, but as a joint force, do we have to get after in a more deliberate fashion going forward some of those planning challenges that I described? Absolutely. We have work to do in those areas. So we're very honest with the commandant about here's where I see we're going to be challenged for a fight tonight scenario, this is what will be our area of concern, but here's what we plan on doing to mitigate that. And with every month, with every exercise, with every war game, we get better and better and better. But I think that probably much speaks for all the services out there and, and the work that everybody's doing because we're looking at a different environment that we've looked at historically. But I'm very proud of the work that's happening across all of the MEFs out there. And people are leaning in very hard to pre prepare ourselves. We have fight tonight, posture and a plan. And then if we're given a little more time to iterate on things a little more, that plan will evolve over months and years as we are able to get more and more and more things in place that we would like to see to make ourselves even better prepared. But if if we are asked to go to war tonight and take care of our Marines and sailors, we are confident and, and that we can, in a more than capable fashion, do so. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. But it sounds like you're, you're working on all those iterations of different punches that we could possibly experience and how we would deal with that. That's a truthful statement. Our construct is to plan against worst case scenarios. 
because then anything else will be a gift, right? So if we can wrap our minds around the absolute worst case scenarios and make plans and branch plans on how we would get after that, then anything short of that will seem easier. So, and we share our, we come around the joint table. I sit with my fellow flag officers from the other services quite often as we have many things that we discuss these days with the military health system. So we like to share our, our thoughts and our concerns and talk about also how can we lean in on, our, on, on the other services and is there a way that we can help shore up each other's, if you have a hole in your swing, can one of the other services shore that up? So the focus on the joint, we have to be able to capitalize on the strengths of the joint force while we all continue to develop and mature our plans for the future fight. What is one thing you'd want all of America to know about military medicine and specifically about Navy Marine medicine? Well, I will tell you this is I I could not be prouder than it's just a different experience. You know, I've worked in the civilian sector. I've worked in the military sector. And it, it is different experience when you get up and put your uniform on every day. When you go to work, you just leave the house with a different mindset. And I think it's that constant reminder of the very unique and precious responsibility we have to take care of our our fellow Marine sailors and, and across actually the entire services. And when we're back here and in garrison, that we also have a role in helping take care of their families. And so what I would like all of America to know is that the beauty of the all-volunteer force continues. And there are people across the cascade of nurses and doctors and techs and everything it takes to take care of your family members, your husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, that there is nothing we take more seriously than our ability to take care of them, not only when they go into harm's way, but every day here in Garrison. For many people, it is not. They will tell you this straight up. Sometimes you have a job and sometimes you're really following your calling and what you really feel like you were meant to do in this world and so many people that wear the uniform in military medicine feel that way. And it's just a different culture and a different environment. And that sense of family and that sense of connectedness of those brothers and sisters in uniform, it's not something that can be replicated in the civilian sector. So those bonds run very deep. And I just want to, if I could, send one message out. It's we, there's no better job in the world than what we do. We take it very seriously. And if something happens that sends this country into a conflict or a war tomorrow, we are ready to take care of your family members that are out there wearing the cloth of this nation. We are ready to go and take care of them. Now, you've had a very distinguished career with a lot of opportunities to be in leadership positions. What is something that you know now as a flag officer that you wish you would have known way earlier in your career? and when you see people, you say, younger folks coming up, say, this is a leadership lesson that you really need to know. That's a really great question. And actually, when I talk to when I'm doing sort of mentoring or I'm helping people with career counseling, I try and share exactly some of those types of thoughts. Because I look back on a younger version of myself when I was in 04 and 05. I think one of the biggest leadership lessons I learned over the years is that it does not matter if you're right, if you're trying to, if you're having a confrontation or a conflict with somebody or another organization, another staff member, another whatever, it's more important 
that you resolve issues through relationship building and the relationships that you foster over time will solve more problems and and get you to a resolution so much faster than just technically being right. Because even if you win that, let's say you win that argument or you win that circumstance, but you burnt bridges and you destroyed relationships and left all that carnage in your path, then you lost and you lost the long game. So the the old adage does apply that you might have won the battle, but you're you will have lost the war. So my younger feistier self, and it wasn't usually for the sake of argument, if I felt very passionate about something and I just knew it was the right thing to do, I would like die in a ditch and fall on my sword trying to get everybody to believe and get to where your opinion and, and your thought carried the day. Like that was the most important thing. And now over the years, I've learned that is completely not the case. <laughs> it is important to be passionate about what you do and you have to know And you have to choose carefully when those moments are so important or the outcomes are so important of that decision that you do die in the ditch and you you will fall on your sword to try and and win that battle because that one is so important or is so pivotal that it's worth the fallout that might occur by going that route. So I'm way more I'm more patient in how I address conflict resolution. And I focus way more on relationship building and then relying on those relationships to sustain you when you might not agree on something. Because if you already have those relationships in place and you respect each other, then you will go through conflict resolution in a respectful manner and you will come out the other side with those relationships still intact to carry you through the next problem. But if you burnt that bridge and you destroyed that, now you have nothing to carry your carry you through the next problem or the next challenge. So that would be my answer. What is the role that mentorship has played in your career and what can be done to ensure that effective mentorship occurs across military medicine? Well, I tell you, I consider myself one of the luckiest people on the planet because quite by chance, not because of any formal process or whatever, I have had some of the best mentors in Navy medicine. And my mentors have been from across all corps. I have had wonderful mentors from the nurse corps, from the medical service corps, uh, across all the corps, not just perched in my field. And I think that's one of the biggest comments I make on this topic to people is you should shop for mentors in a very broad shopping cart because mentors can help you in so many ways. Don't take a very narrow focus. And if you're a doctor, say, well, I need mentors. I need physicians as mentors. You should seek out mentors from different avenues and in different aspects of your world, both professionally and personally, because they bring diversity to perspective and you'll learn so much more. I think the most important things in a mentoring relationship, number one, are that it's a choice. I don't believe in formal programs where mentors are assigned. You can assign a sponsor, but you cannot assign a mentor. That has to be a choice between the person being mentored and the mentor. There has to be a good personality match. There has to be buy-in by both parties on that. And that's the only way they're successful because it, it takes work and effort on both people's parts to sustain that mentoring relationship over time. And therefore, that's probably the biggest feedback I have on that are those two factors. That has to be a choice and it takes a lot of work and dedication on both people's parts for it to succeed. And I have been very blessed over the years to have many, many excellent mentors. If you come across a high school student or a college student that's interested in medicine and is considering the military options, what kind of advice would you give that person? 
And when I'm speaking to people, whether it's at the high school level, at the college level or whatever, and they're either considering a choice in medicine and particularly military medicine, first of all, I always ask them, what is your view of what that looks like? Because you always want people to go in eyes wide open to understand it. You can't sell somebody something. And then when they get into that field or that experience, it's something completely different than what they expected, because that's not a win for anybody. So for people that are considering a career in medicine, I always ask them, what is your view of that? And let me help you shape that so that you understand the world in which you're entering. Because I've lived in both the civilian and the military side of medicine. And there are things that are wonderful about both and there's challenges. And so you want people to make an informed decision. But in terms of medicine, with all the challenges that exist today in trying to practice medicine in the way that you want to practice and what you see as delivering good care can be difficult because of time constraints, resource constraints, competing requirements, et cetera, in the civilian sector. I always remind people, if your idea of a perfect profession for you is that you make a difference in people's lives every day and that you are able to impact people sometimes at their most vulnerable times, like an emergency room, an ICU or wherever, or have that long-term relationship in a primary care environment, then medicine offers you that opportunity. And not only that, but if you get into a, a particular field in medicine and you are suddenly don't like what you're doing today or you're kind of bored with it, there's a million other things you can do. There are so many different angles to medicine that there is something for everybody. And it's a people profession. So if you're kind of not a people person, there's a few fields in medicine that you might like, but most of them probably not. There's a few where don't even require you to have a whole bunch of patient contact. But if you love people and that's your passion, it's a field for you. And in military medicine, you take everything that I just said and then you layer on top of that the fact that you will practice medicine in an environment and in a way and part of a team, part of the people who share the privilege of wearing the cloth of this nation in all different kinds of austere circumstances. You can be in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. You can be with the Marine Corps, the, the Coast Guard, all kinds of places and doing all kinds of things and have experiences. You will never have that opportunity in the civilian sector. So I always encourage people, it's like, look, this affords you very unique opportunities, things you absolutely cannot replicate in the civilian sector. So the civilian sector will always be there. We all have to retire someday out of the military. And then there's the benefit of whether you stay for a short while, one tour, one contract, or whether you stay for a lifetime, you are in the 1% of this nation who has raised your hand and wore the cloth of this nation. And so you are automatically in a very special place and done something very unique and very special in support of your country. And that will always follow you. And when you've been in the military and you've practiced military medicine, the civilian sector values that. And they understand a lot of what we bring out with us when we leave the military is valued by the civilian sector. So it will always work in your favor and on your behalf to have had that military experience. It is a, a recognized feather in your cap when you're out someday they throw us all out eventually you got to go is that's something nobody can ever take from you what changes do you see in military medicine that will improve battlefield care in the next 10 to 20 years well i think the the biggest changes that i'm witnessing now are maybe in the research or formative phases or not mainstream but will become more prominent in the near term mid term and long term i think like game changers will be like shelf stable blood products 
if we have shelf-stable blood products don't require a lot of the sustainment that we do now, that will be a game changer for us in battlefield medicine. I think you see a lot of experimentation with autologous delivery of logistics, unmanned vehicles of all types that are delivering logistics and and a, a number of different types of logistics to include medical logistics. That will prove to be very beneficial. You're seeing a lot of research and piloting with wearables that people go into the battlefield with different types of wearables that allow us to monitor different aspects from a medical standpoint and others that will provide more information for, especially when we are doing more distributive operations or when people are out in an austere environment, particularly our special forces and people that are alone and unafraid, that we have an ability to understand when something has happened to them or is happening to them and can get ahead of that scenario. So wearables, I think, are going to be a big thing. Telemedicine is always being further developed. And how do we use telemedicine to help get higher end care out to the forward deployed forces and at the more pointy end of the spear? And then I would say late, lastly is AI assisted medical decision making, like what kind of tools and what kind of assistance can we get to our, our most basic level providers that might be without a lot of supporting cast around them, especially when you talk about these prolonged field care situations and whether we have contested communication so they can't just call and phone a friend, well, how can we use artificial intelligence to assist their medical decision-making so that we can improve the level of care we're able to provide regardless of what level of a provider you are on the continuum? I think those are some of the highlights I see. So we started our conversation off with you describing the history of service in your family. When the history books are written 50 to 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy to be in military medicine? Well, um, I'll tell you, I, I don't consider myself that I rate a legacy. I'm just a person. I'm part in it. You're just one person in a giant wheel of people that it takes to, to make the world go round. But I will say is if anybody were to say anything 50 to a to 100 years from now, I would hope they would say that I made a difference somehow that you look back on military medicine and that I left something along the way and went better than I found it, that you moved the ball down the field, that you were able to facilitate something that, that, that led to an even better opportunity for us to take care of not only battlefield casualties, but our, our families, our veterans, everybody that relies on the military health system, that if they could just say a few words 50 to 100 years from now, I hope somebody can say that I made a difference. That's all I've ever really wanted to do. We've been speaking with Dr. Pamela Miller on Wardock's podcast. Ma'am, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. It's a privilege today and every day. And I know my, my years are growing short. I'll be very sad when I hang up the uniform, but it has been the biggest privilege of a lifetime. And I really appreciate the um, invitation and the opportunity to speak with you all tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. WarDocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.